This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and I'm the creator of FinTech Takes. And today I have a very special bonus episode of the FinTech Takes podcast. Um, I recently recorded a much longer podcast with uh, one of my favorite people in FinTech, Frank Rotman, the Chief Investment Officer at QED Investors. Uh, Frank's been on the podcast before. He's a brilliant thinker and investor in the FinTech space. And the episode that we recorded covered a lot of different ground, and you're going to get to hear that uh, coming up at the end of this month. But I thought as a little treat, a preview, I would bring to you the last segment that we recorded for that podcast as a special bonus podcast, which I think makes sense to release at the beginning of the new year because it is a segment all about predictions. Now, if you know anything about Frank, what you will know is he is not a big fan of doing your standard what's going to happen in 2024 type predictions. Uh, he doesn't really believe in them. And I knew that. And so when I went to Frank and asked him to do this. I gave him a slightly different assignment, which was tell us what's going to happen in fintech, but look out across a much longer time horizon. And by that way, I think we had a really, really interesting conversation. Uh, Frank, as is typical, brought some great insights to the table and really uh, kind of reframed a lot of the things I was thinking about headed into the new year. So without further ado, we're going to drop you into that segment of the podcast. Here is my conversation with Frank Rotman. The assignment I gave you, Frank, was using a five to 10 year time horizon please come to us with some predictions or some things, some thoughts about what might change in the future. So I will hand the floor over to you. I don't even have any predictions. I'm just going to react to yours. But please give us some of your longer term thoughts. Yeah, so I agree with you. I mean, I think predictions as they're done in the industry today are either no dot insights or they're polarizing. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, building startups is a seven to 10 year journey to make change. So if you're going to make change in an industry, it, it actually does take real time to accomplish important and big things. So I think the five to 10 year time frame is perfect. And, you know, I'll start this off by saying it shouldn't come as a surprise to your audience that quite a few of my predictions are going to be in the world of AI and how it's going to affect, yeah. you know, everything from jobs to the products that we consume going forward. Because in that time horizon, there's going to be a lot of change, and this is actually one of the most obvious drivers of it. The question is what the uh, net result is of AI. You know, the first one that I'll point to is actually the stock market. And my prediction over a five to 10 year time horizon is that the stock market actually needs and will probably see an entire overhaul in how it works. So talk about a big prediction, like you know, if I if I wanted to say this is going to happen in 2024, people would say, oh, my God, like, <laughs> you know, you think AI is taking over the world tomorrow. No, but right, right. over that time horizon, I think that we're going to realize what's happened, you know, to the stock market over the past few decades with AI accelerating the trend to a very dangerous point where it needs to be rethought. You know, so the reality is that there's a game that's being played in the public markets, you know, with stock ticker symbols. And prices sure. is kind of the pieces and the scorekeeping of the game, right? I mean, it's a very strange way of thinking about it. But if you look at the behaviors that are out there, the buying and selling of stocks is not as pure as it used to be. 
you know, the reality is that when you buy a stock, right? So if you buy shares of a company, you're buying ownership in the future cash flows of that business. Companies publicly report the performance once a quarter, but stocks are traded like every nanosecond, right? So if totally. you think about like this complete shift from reality where infra new information is really coming in less frequently than the stocks are actually trading, it's the definition. Yeah, by by orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. It's the definition of a liquid market, but at the same time, you throw another trend on top of that where you collapse the cost of trading to zero. Yeah. And you create a game, right? And that game is about day trading and it's about figuring out if you can find short-term signals in highly liquid markets, et cetera, et cetera. And the more you see this for what it is, and by the way, you can see all the trends, like the duration of the typical hold of a stock has collapsed precipitously over the past few decades, right? And in fact, if you look at the typical trader today, I was looking at one trading platform we were thinking of investing in, happened to be in another country, but the average person using the platform was trading 30 times a month. Like, whoa, these yeah. are small dollar accounts and they're trading 30 times a month. Like, what are they actually accomplishing? Yeah. You know, volatility totally. is actually the feature, not the flaw. And, you know, they're really trying to just play this game. Well, who can play this game better than human beings? Well, silicon-based learning machines. So yeah. it would be like saying, I'm going to learn how to play chess, and my only opponent is going to be the world's best AI-trained chess player. Where you have zero... And by the way, we're going to make it speed chess where you have to move as fast as possible. That's right. So the chances of you winning that game are precisely zero. Not like fractionally possible, like it is precisely zero that you are going to win in that game. So in a world where the consumer is set up to actually fail, yeah, where AI bots are going to be trading all the time and yeah, you know, figuring out how to extract whatever signal they can from the markets, the retail consumer is at a disadvantage. Now making this worse, disinformation actually becomes part of the game. And who best to create disinformation in the markets that in a very predictable way will move the markets? Well, human beings might be okay at that game. AI will be exceptional at that game, right? Totally. And in fact, there's zero labor oh, yeah. costs. You know, it has the ability to actually execute for you. So structurally, I think we have a problem in the making with how our stock markets work. Like they are going to be destabilized, you know, through AI basically showcasing the game that we've been playing and playing poorly as, you know, carbon-based right. learning forms instead of the carbon-based learning machines instead of silicon-based learning machines. Like, this is going to be something that needs a complete rethink because there are going to be damages and instability as well in a world where yeah. algorithmic trading is going to be run by who can write the best bots. Yeah, no, I love that prediction. I think, I mean, I couldn't agree more. This is a strange comparison, but I think the first thing that popped to my mind, just from a consumer perspective, but it sort of speaks to sort of structural problems with new technology. But I don't know if you've tried to buy like a ticket to an event or tried to buy really anything that's like in demand online. Bots have completely destroyed that experience. They really have, right? And so like there is no- This dates me, but in high school, I used to camp out for tickets when they were on sale yes, for concerts. Yes, and yes, I knew yes. how Ticketmaster worked and I knew how to ask the person behind the counter for right. you know, these seats and use this code and figure out how to get me these seats. And then I would go and scalp the tickets, yes. you know, because I knew how to get the best tickets yeah. by waiting overnight. So 
I'd laugh at what's happening online because the bots do that much better than I ever did. And I had to camp out in parking lots overnight in order to wait in line (laughs) to try to get tickets. Totally, totally. And it speaks to exactly the same phenomenon, which is like from a stock trading perspective, if I have to call my broker and I have to like pay a fee every time they're going to do it and it's a whole big manual process, like the incentives are just not there for everyone to play this game in a casual, low stakes environment. Like you have to be committed to doing it. And it just sort of has a natural constraining effect, which keeps the system from breaking. But I've absolutely noticed like a very sort of early prototype version of the same problem playing out in the world of tickets or buying like shit, buying a PlayStation 5 for years was like impossible because bots were just snatching all of them up. And it really made me wonder like, what systems do we have to build to sell things online that are in high demand. I think we're going to need to completely rethink that infrastructure. And like Ticketmaster, I went to Taylor Swift, which was a wild experience. I went to uh, an Eras Tour concert. And I mean, just getting the ticket, I think by the time we actually got one that was verified and I got to the final screen where I was paying all the extra fees, like I think I blacked out. I don't even remember how much I paid. Like that was like, it was an extreme, extreme process. Like that's not fundamentally sustainable. And I think applying that thinking to a much larger, more liquid, constantly on game that's being played, which to your point is exactly what the stock market has become. Like it doesn't take a whole lot of projecting out to see that getting broken. We already have seen stresses put on it, right? I mean, like I'm looking forward to being able to see the movie that's coming out about the whole GameStop meme stock phenomenon. But that was like one of those like kind of fever, almost breaking kind of moments where you kind of started to see some of the cracks pop up. Like that's going to be a thing that happens more. It's hard because you know, while that was happening, I projected myself into being the CEO of one of those companies that was being traded in the public market yeah. and started to think like, yeah. what would I have done if I were the CEO of GameStop while that was happening? <laughs> the massive right. game right. was being played with my ticker symbol in the middle. Yes. And the price of it being the output about whether you're winning or losing the game. Totally. Right. Like it makes it impossible to actually manage a public company. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I just want to hit that point really fast. That's the other half of this that's probably going to be a big conversation five, 10 years from now, whenever this happens is this affects the way companies behave, right? And like, to me, that's such a, I mean, I obviously want to protect retail traders and like, there's a whole sort of consumer protection angle to this. But the bigger sort of systemic issue to me is I can't have companies getting involved in this game more than they already have been. Like the idea that it's going to warp how companies behave and like value creation for the economy, like that's the scary thought to me. Very, very hard. That's really great. Okay, give me, give us your next one. The next one is that financial institutions are going to completely refactor their cost structures, right? This is another no duh insight that we will start to see play out a little bit in the next year, but over the next five years and 10 years, it's going to have a massive effect. And I, I don't think people appreciate like how big the financial service and insurance industries are. But in the U.S. alone, I know the figures for the U.S. I don't know them globally, but you could basically double the U.S. and you'll probably end up with the global numbers. But in the U.S., 6.7 million Americans are employed by the financial services and insurance industries. Like it's a a pretty big industry. Average salary, about $72,000. It means that when you multiply these together, there's almost half a trillion dollars worth of expense just sitting in people, right? And if you think about them as carbon-based learning machines, and we start to think about the cost of silicon-based learning machines, there's going to be a complete refactoring of how work is being done. You know, there are over 400,000 tellers. There are over 400,000 financial service sales agents. 
There's about the same number of insurance sales agents, about the same number of loan officers, accountants, auditors, like each of these pieces of the financial service profession, you know, have close to half a million people in jobs where it doesn't take a lot of insight to say that the job is going to be very different when having AI co-pilots or potentially being completely replaced by AI agents. You know, so if you actually ask yourself, like, how many of these jobs will exist in their current form or fashion 10 years from now? And if you say that, you know, running the carbon-based learning machine, the person, right, if you think about the person doing work as basically executing code, it's the code of how people work, it's costing 60 cents a minute on average for a lot of these jobs. And if you could replace them with silicon-based learning machines, it's going to cost fractions of a penny to get to the answer, not just per minute. So there's going to have to be a reckoning here. And it's not just in the financial services industry. Like this is a trend that's going to, you know, cross lots of industries. I, you know, the piece I wrote on AI recently talks a bit about carbon-based learning machines versus silicon-based learning machines. And I think that this is going to be profound because a lot of the underpinnings of how financial services work will be replaced once we have the right data sets and the right technology and the right regulation around it. But given a five to 10 year horizon, not a one year horizon, you're going to really attack this half a trillion dollar cost structure, you know, of the uh, the financial services industry and eviscerate it. That's a really interesting one. And it Again, sort of drawing a parallel, we've seen a, a small version of this play out already with sort of early generations of B2B and B2C fintech companies, right, uh, competing with banks because the cost structure just in terms of like operationally, how we're going to approach things like customer service, underwriting, back office tasks, the fact that we're not going to have branches, like we've seen this, an early version of the story play out where there's one cost structure going up against a very different cost structure. And I guess a question I would bounce back to you would be, what are some of your learnings from that early sort of uh, clash of cost structures and sort of what came out of it? Like, did customers benefit from lower costs? Were things made more accessible? Was there sort of more value accruing to different parts you of know. the ecosystem? Like, what can we expect when this clash happens at a much greater level? So it's a good question. I mean, the best analog to look at is a company that, you know, we got involved with at its very earliest stages. I mean, at the formation stage, we spent time with uh, David Velez at Newbank. I knew you were going to say Newbank. It's a perfect, it's a perfect example. Yeah, go for it. Right. Newbank is a digital challenger bank in Brazil. It is now one of the largest banks in Brazil. It's now competing with the incumbents. It's a $40 billion plus market cap company, you know, at this yep. point, bringing in billions of dollars of revenue and profitable. Like it's a force. I think it's yeah. one in two consumers in Brazil are using some product of Nubank. So, I mean, it's a, it's a monster and it built its entire infrastructure and it is a digital only infrastructure, not a digital first, not a digital advantaged, like it is a digital only infrastructure. So it is amazing what could happen, you know, with a digital only infrastructure creating the products and services that are precisely the ones that are wanted by your customer base. And, you know, the problem, I, I wrote about this years ago in a piece called The Copernican Revolution in Banking. I know it well. You know, that basically talks about how banks, the, the traditional bank is a 50 by 50 box on a street corner. That's a big advertisement for people to come in to show that they actually exist. And they distribute, on average, 350 products that are very generic. 
And, you know, if you look at having 350 generic products and the infrastructure associated with them and the costs, when the typical customer that you serve, when they walk into the bank, they probably only want somewhere between three and six of your products. So you're, you know, basically having the entire cost structure of both the physical infrastructure as well as keeping up products that very few parts or segments of your customer base actually care about, right? So it's a very inefficient way of running the machine. And if you can take cost out of the system, it, it means a lot of things. I mean, it means you can, yeah. you know, uh, offer better products, you can have better experiences, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to see some change. If you were to look at the U.S. at the top 20 banks, yeah, how many of them are digital-only infrastructure companies? Zero, right? Let, that will not be true. Like, here's a new prediction. Like, 10 years from now, that will not be true. There will be a digital-only, you know, banking institution that uh, cracks into the top 20. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that prediction. And I think to put a fine point on it, you know, I mean the top 20 banks, their model, they got really good at doing universal banking, which is that large store with these massive number of products that are very generic. And it's not, I mean, it reminds me a lot of the revolution we've been going through with media and newspapers and all these things that the internet affects. Like when you change one of those fundamental assumptions, which is, oh, now it's the cost to supply this thing, the cost to build products and maintain products goes from being this massive thing where unless you have a huge organization, and you have the resources to do it, you can't play the same game, right? Like there are no digital banks in the US that can play the game that Chase plays right now. But when the costs necessary to cover the waterfront and to serve all those different segments of customers, when it goes down, the game completely changes and suddenly Chase's advantage in employing however many employees they have, 220,000, whatever it is, that advantage goes away and in fact becomes a weight around their neck. So I think that is a really interesting thread to pull on. Yeah, I mean, the next prediction that I'll make kind of dovetails with that. Yeah, yeah. Then it's the discovery will be perfect, right? So imagine having this infrastructure where what you rely on is that people are going to walk into those 50 by 50 boxes and because they know you're going to offer them a solution, they will take that solution. Not necessarily the best solution, but they'll take the solution because it's the one their local bank offers or their credit union offers. And in a world of perfect discovery where people have AI agents actually working for them, you know, financial institutions that rely on customer inertia or incomplete research to sell their products or retain their customers, that's going to change. And, you know, the question that I always ask, and it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't tell you whether you will succeed, but I find that it is a good litmus test for whether you deserve the right to succeed, you know, in a market. I ask companies all the time, if a rational consumer were faced with perfect information, would they pick your product? And if the answer is no, like it's going to be hard to build that business or maintain that business in a world where discovery is perfect. Yeah. So that's something that I think is only a few years away, but it's. That's a great one because the underpinning of that from a financial services context is so much, <laughs> a startling amount, a frightening amount of how much the financial industry sort of like the infrastructure it rests on is customers making less than optimal decisions with not great information, right? And like the most obvious example of that would be deposit betas being relatively low, even as rates go up, right? And so much of, you know... Uh, yeah, let's talk about deposits for a second. So pull, pull on that, yeah. I, I spent time with a regional bank, a large regional bank, yeah. And I was talking to one of their 
top few executives that was in charge of their consumer business. Right. And in a casual conversation, they were telling me how excited they were that they had all of these customers that had money trapped in savings, like not checking accounts, but in savings accounts that had an average of 0.02% interest rate. Right. Why are you proud of the fact that you have billions of dollars that consumers are leaving with you in a savings account earning 0.002%? Like, isn't your job to help your customize value, right? Make money. And I said, if a new customer came in today, are you offering them that 0.02% rate? They're like, oh no, new customers get better rates than that. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you're supposed to be a fiduciary. Yep. And you're happy to just let your customers stay ignorant. Totally. About a better offer that's out there for a newer customer coming in. You know that they could go to a competitor and get a better offer than you have. Like yep. how good of a job are you at being a fiduciary? And he yep. actually did not like that line of uh, questioning. I wouldn't think, <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> but for most consumers, if you ask them, they think the bank right. is supposed to be the fiduciary watching out for them. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's and I think, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that. I had an experience with a top five bank recently where I had sort of sleepy, lazy money in a savings account that I just, you know, I mean, we're all busy. We don't pay attention to these things. We're not always optimizing. We're not silicon based learning machines, right? We have uh, things that are distracting us. I have three kids at home that suck up literally all of my extra time. And so eventually, though, like rates were getting to the point where I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure they can't be paying me as much as I could be going out in the market. So I went to check and like, and I, I'm a financial services guy. Like I work in this industry and my jaw hit the floor. I was like, oh my God. And then I did exactly what you said. I went and looked at what their rates were that they were offering for new customers and they're right up competitive with everyone else. And it, it kind of goes to your kind of core point around discovery. Like what's the implication of perfect discovery? To me, the core implication of it is you are now going to have to be f entirely focused on earning your customer's business every day, not benefiting from arbitrage that hurts your customer. And that's like a huge, huge shift for every industry, but financial services might be one of the biggest. It's pretty profound. I don't think people yeah. understand with the products, the average product suite that a bank has yeah, and the amount of business that they would not command yeah. if it were a perfect bake-off. I could not agree more. Well, and the problem, and I think this is something that might even extend into sort of discussions at a regulatory level with prudential bank regulators is so much of like banking stability and like the jobs we ask banks to do and how we evaluate how well they're doing them functions a little bit on this arbitrage, right? I mean, like we think of Chase as being a really stable bank because they have this really stable base of low cost deposits. If that's not true, the entire job that they do and the way we think about them as a stable pillar of the financial industry, that changes too. So, I mean, I whenever I talk about open banking or I talk about sort of AI agents and the impact it has on discovery, I always have in the back of my head someone from like the FDIC listening and going like, oh my God, you know, like that would be a massive, massive change. Kind of harkens back to your stock market prediction. Like there, there will be reverberations of that that go well beyond the private market. So I'll make one more prediction, and this one will be outside of the realm of AI. It's the perfect one to end on then. Okay, go. And it's in the world of money movement. So the concept that banks are running on their own ledgers and need an intra-bank settlement process to move money from one ledger to another is going to be solved. People who aren't really familiar with how all of this works, like it is so much friction in the system today 
with the thousands of banks that are in the U.S. and the thousands of banks that are internationally and all of the money that's actually being moved from bank to bank, you know, from currency to currency as well. Like, yeah, it is massive friction. So the concept that there will be a set of rails that have good money on it at all times without the need for currency conversion or an intrabank settlement process in the middle, I think that's going to be the norm. And if you think about what this is, it's basically just another definition for stable coins. Right. Right. So stable coins with blockchain infrastructure, you know, underpinning it, it really is the solution, you know, to taking the friction out of all of this money movement that's happening between agencies. And what will be interesting is once stable coins become the currency powering these rails, even though you're still going to have friction on the on and off ramps, uh, a lot of businesses and a lot of people might infrequently off-ramp the stable coins because once people know that it's the currency of the rails, they can keep it in the stable coins and it will have value and people can trade directly the stable coins that are sitting in the middle of the process. Right. So I think you're going to see a lot more of various currencies and it'll probably be USD backed stable coins. I think there is just one announced in Europe with the French bank, yeah. you know, basically talking about creating a Euro denominated stable coin. Like, I think these are going to become much more common and in fact, the norm for any cross-border trade. And I think there's going to be a lot of currency locked, you know, in stable coins because it reduces the friction of just moving money around the globe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually think that's going to become the norm. And, you know, if you don't have a stable coin solution and yeah. you're in the world of money movement, I think you're going to miss the boat. That's a great one. I mean, I, I know you went on a whole journey <laughs> in 2021 and 2022, sort of diving into the world of crypto and everything relating to that and trying to sort of parse it from a first principles perspective. And it was so useful to be able to follow you on Twitter while you were doing that, because I was trying to do a, a less studious version of that at the same time. But my observation around all of this has been that the more that the mania and the speculation recedes from this space, the more I, it's like the tide rolling out and you're like walking along and looking at like seashells, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I see so many interesting use cases that are sort of quietly still being worked on that have nothing to do with sort of the speculative value of this stuff. And, you know, stable coins sit right at the middle of a lot of that. And it's really like, it's crypto stripped of all the speculation. And so like what you're left with is this mechanism that allows for certain things that do strip a lot of the costs out. I remember I saw... An announcement. I can't remember which stable or which uh, central banks were working on this, but there was a group of central banks and they were doing a kind of a pilot program. And what they were working on was, can we embed the compliance requirements that we have on a country by country basis into a stable coin framework that makes it much, much easier and less friction filled to move money from one country to another? Because to your point, in a lot of cases, it's not the actual communication it's all of the other things that get wrapped around money movement that just make it incredibly complex. And that's why you have, have to have all these intermediaries. If you want to deep dive into this, look up like what correspondent banking is and just go down the rabbit hole. But like when I saw that, I mean, like central banks are not the most innovative cutting edge, like, you know, we're going to the moon, like that's not how they think. And so they're yeah, sort of quiet, this is real continued thing. obsession. It is. It absolutely is. Like central banks love stable coins and are continuing to see a lot of value in them. And so now I don't think that's an out of the box prediction at all. I wouldn't be surprised if that's more of a five year thing than a 10 year thing. Like, do you think we're getting inching closer to that? 
Yeah, I think we are because besides the interoperability, you know, where again, think of all these thousands of ledgers around the world and just making totally. sure that it is good money moving around. Like it's crazy yeah. to think there are that yeah. many ledgers in the world. But besides that, stable coins have the value of allowing people in one country to have access to another country's currency right. and use it as a savings mechanism. Right. So if you're in Nigeria and you watch what happened to the Naira over the past handful of years, especially what happened to this happened this year, like you might want access to a very different currency for the money that you're saving in order to combat against, you know, the intricacies of what's happening within your country around monetary policy. Now, that's a reason why some governments might not like, you know, stable coins because mm-hmm. they'll have a bit less control. Mm-hmm. But I think there are going to be multiple reasons and use cases for stable coins that when you add them up together, you know, it becomes a very valuable form fashion of currency. Yeah. You know, that people can trade and trade for very rational reasons. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I will give credit to Simon Taylor for shaping my thinking on stable coins because uh, I have sort of an allergic reaction to a lot of crypto stuff just generally. But one of the things he always talked about that I think is fits exactly into what you're saying is it's hard sometimes when you don't live in one of those countries to understand the value of something like that. And so it can be difficult to put yourself in those shoes. But I totally agree. And I think that's a great one to end on. Frank, thank you so much for um, this extra long session of letting us pick your brain. I learned a ton and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.